So this morning, we have got two primary scripture passages, but you're going to be bouncing a lot through the scriptures, and I'm not going to apologize for that. (laughs) Uh, But we do have two primary scripture passages. One is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 8, and the other is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So if you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Isaiah chapter 42, hear God's word. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to John's first epistle. I'm sorry, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 8 and continuing in the reading of God's word. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well, as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Thus far in the reading of God's Word, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we pray now as we turn our attention to this portion of it, that you would feed us with rich manna. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, I would guess that all of us in this room come from slightly different backgrounds in terms of the church, in terms of your growing up in the church. Maybe you grew up in a fundamentalist household like I did. Maybe you grew up outside the Christian faith entirely like my wife did. Maybe you grew up in a solid covenant Presbyterian church, like hopefully my children did, (laughs) Uh, all of our backgrounds, you know, your background might be Baptist, it might be Methodist, it might be Lutheran, it might be Roman Catholic. All of us, I think, come from a variety of different backgrounds. But in these backgrounds, in all the various ways that we come, we all acknowledge that there are elders and deacons in a healthy church. So the question is, what is a deacon? Why 
the office of deacon. Why? I, elders kind of make sense, I think, uh, especially if you've had any shepherding visits in your home. Then you know that elders are, are given to the ministry of prayer and word. And, and so that's our calling, and the deacons are everything else, sort of. Um, but, but why would this be such an important task? Why is this so important that God gives it a specific title and a specific office? So I want to look this morning quickly at three arenas. The first is the office of deacon, what that office is, what the deacon is in his office. The second is I want to look at the work of that office, what it is that the deacon does. And then thirdly and finally, I want to look at the office in its relationship to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because I think for many of us who have got faulty views of what it is that a deacon does, probably even if you've grown up in a good Presbyterian church, you might think the deacons are just the people that holler at you when you run after service. Uh, that's their job, is to make you not have any fun. Uh, that's the work of a deacon for many of us children, or you children. Um, but... Uh, the, the, the office in its relationship to Jesus Christ is third and finally. So let's look at the office itself. Now, the first time that we encounter the word deacon is in Acts chapter 6. That's the, that's the first time that we see this word in our Bibles. Now, if you know anything about the, the, the term, the office itself, you'll know that deacon simply is Greek for servant. That's all it is. Uh, the office of deacon is a servant. And so many, even conservative uh, churches, believe that because servant can be male or female, that the office of deacon ought to be open to either male or female. And so you've got a, this has been a longstanding practice among many very, very conservative uh, churches is to have female deacons. Uh, I do not believe, we do not believe, that that is biblically most uh, consistent. And I would just point you to the passage I just read, which is that the deacon is to be the husband of one wife, and that his wife is not to be a slanderer and, and those sorts of things. Seems like we're talking about men here. Uh, and, and so for that and for other reasons, we'll, we'll stick with that. But the office appears to us in the book of Acts. Now, why? Why and and it actually it arises out of a crisis in the church. There is a crisis that the church is facing, and the solution to this crisis is deacons. Now the crisis is this: we begin in Acts chapter two with Peter and Pentecost, and from Acts chapter two all the way down to Acts chapter six you see this dramatic, startling growth in the church. There are thousands that are being saved. There are people that are coming to Christ daily, Acts tells us. There are, there are priests, temple priests, who are becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And so from your starting point of 3,000 
in Acts chapter 2 with the day of Pentecost to chapter 2 and verse 47 where we are told that Christ is daily adding to the number. 3,000 was our benchmark. That was our, that was our floor level. Daily adding to that 3,000 figure. And then in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, Luke, the writer of Acts, just gives up counting. He's just lost numbers. He just says multitudes. The place is being flooded with people who are responding to this glorious drawing of the Holy Spirit, this glorious outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the glorious message that the Messiah has come. Israel's long-awaited Savior, the one that they have yearned for, every Jewish woman has prayed that she would be blessed to be the one to give birth. This has been central in, in terms of their hope and identity. And he's arrived. He's arrived and he's calling the nations to himself. The language we saw just now in the book of Isaiah chapter 42, the language of my servant is going to bring justice to the world. And the coastlands are going to wait for his law. This is what is taking place in Acts, and it's exciting. Now, a lot of people, I won't say a lot, I have had people tell me before. (laughs) Let's put it that way. I have had people tell me before, I just want to be an Acts Christian. Everything I see in the book of Acts is exciting. This is what I want the church to be. This is what I want my life to be. All that Old Testament stuff, whatever. But Acts is where it's at. And my rejoinder to that is, read some of the sermons, you idiot. Read some of the sermons that are recorded for us in Acts and tell me how much of the Old Testament they quote. The entire point of every single sermon in Acts, the entire structure is identical The conclusion is identical. Every single sermon in the book of Acts begins with the Old Testament, points us to Jesus Christ, and ends with a command that you respond to it. That's every single sermon that is given in Acts. And that basic model of preaching, showing how all the Scripture leads us to Christ, and demanding a response to that, expecting someone to respond to that glorious message, leads to an explosion in the church. Which then immediately leads to a problem. Because to become a Christian, you've got to say to your Jewish family, I'm sorry. And what are they going to do? They're going to cut you off. To become a Christian, you've got to say to the Roman economic system that requires that you participate in idolatry, pouring out libations, all of these sorts of things, you've got to say, I don't follow. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so what's the practical ramification of that? I mean, you, you want to be an Acts Christian? You want to be an Acts Christian? Here it is. You get cut off from your family, you get cut off from your friends, and you get thrown into economic distress. 
There's your model. That is precisely what takes place in Acts. Thousands of people, thousands of them, rejecting family, turning their back on the world, and making this commitment to follow after Jesus Christ. And what happens? There's a lot of need. There's an awful lot of need. Now, let's take it a step further. If, the, do you remember what the, the original conflict was in the early church? Do you remember what Acts 15 is about? The original conflict in the early church, and we haven't even gotten to 15 yet. We're still back here in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 here in a second. <laughs> Way down the road, Acts chapter 15. The big issue is, in order to be a true Christian, do you have to become Jewish? Do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to keep the Jewish ceremonial law? And Acts chapter 15 is this Jerusalem council. It becomes a big issue around the church. Do people in Rome need to get circumcised? Do they need to follow after the Jewish law? Because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. This is the statement of, of Judaism, uh, that this is the God of heaven and earth, and Jupiter and all these other gods are nothing. Uh, but, but this is the God of heaven and earth, and it's always been for thousand years at least, it's always been that in order to be a follower of God, you're circumcised and you keep the law, ceremonial as well as moral. So what's changed? Has anything changed? Well, that's what Acts 15 is about. But that's still a debate, and so we're going to save it till we get there, <laughs> into Acts 15. But right now, with our feet planted in between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6, this is very much a debate within the church. Do the people need to become Jews in order to be faithful Christians? The Apostolic Council has not yet met. This problem is just beginning to bubble up to the surface. But if that is the core problem, then what do you think People are going to be, who, let's say, who do you think people are going to be showing preference to? If I think that in order to be a faithful Christian, you should be circumcised, and you should be going to the temple along with me, and you say, yeah, I don't see that. A, circumcision thing, that is never happening. And B, I don't see why I should be going to the temple. I never was a Jew to begin with, and you're saying Jesus is the temple, and, and now the church is the temple. I don't, I, I'm not buying into all this. But I, I, I really love this Jesus and this gospel. So who do you think the church is going to give preference to when it's got a list of thousands who are broke? whose families have rejected them, and who can't get jobs in society. So it's a real problem. It's a, it's a real problem that is there in the early church and, and really has the capacity to destroy the church, at the very least to cause a church split. I mean, here's, here's our basis for the first church 
split. We'll have first church of the Jewish Christians here, and we'll have first church of the Gentiles over here. And Victory Baptist Church versus First Baptist Church. <laughs> That's going to be our model here in the early, or not to pick on Baptist, Victory Presbyterian Church and <laughs> First Presbyterian Church or whatever. But this is a real problem. It, it threatens to divide the church. And so we come to Acts chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. Now, Hellenists is another word for the Greeks. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, have I given you enough background so that you... I don't have to explain that verse much. Why are there people being in need of daily distribution? Because they've had to cut themselves off from their family from every economic support network, from state, and, and all of that sort of thing, they're broke. They're struggling. They're in financial hardship. Also, the church is Jewish. The church first met in synagogues. The church is a Jewish community. And so you've got all these outsiders, quote-unquote, the Greeks, that are coming in from the outside, joining the church, but they don't get the same treatment that we give to the ones that we know and love, to the ones that have been with us for a long time. So the, the, the disciples, the apostles, they've got a challenge. They've got to deal with this challenge because this is a church split that's about to happen. And so in verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. And the first words out of their mouth, I love it, because frankly, it's a rebuke. To me, I won't, put, I won't put labels on anybody else, but it's a rebuke to me. They say, and, and now what, what would you do? What would I do as a pastor if I see that there's a problem in the church? If I see that there's two camps in the church? If I see that there's division in the church, specifically over something as critical as caring for widows? I gotta fix it. Right? <laughs> I gotta jump in there and fix it. That's not what the apostles do. What do they say? Verse two. It is not right that we should neglect the ministry of prayer and word. They are focused in. And I said, it's a rebuke to me because I kind of wonder how many hours of my preparation week? How many hours of my pastoral ministry would I say is exclusively prayer and word versus how many hours of ministry time are taken up in other things? And I, I, I come to this passage often as a, as a rebuke, but as an encouragement that I need to step up my prayer game a lot. Uh, I need to be focusing in the same way that these apostles focused, if I want to see a New Testament church, if I want to see an Acts type of church. So the apostles say it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves 
to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It's the most profound decision in church history. It really is. Reformation, all the other big things that have ever happened in church history, that right there is the most profound thing that has ever shaped the Christian church, is the apostles saying, number one, our calling is prayer and word, not serving tables. But then number two, oh my goodness, I love this. Number two, second reason, this is the most profound thing, statement, action in church history. The apostles don't fix it. They don't come in and say, therefore, we have assigned these seven men. It is not right that we give ourselves to the ministry of prayer, or to the ministry of serving tables. We need to give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and word. Therefore, we have handpicked seven men. These men accurately balance the ethnicities of the congregation. One of them is a type A planner kind of guy. The other is, is one of these really hands-on servant kind of guys. These, this is the perfect team for this congregation of thousands. They don't do that, do they? What do they do? Look at your Bible. They say, therefore, you choose from among you men who are filled with the Spirit. Do you see how the apostles are trusting the work of the Spirit in these new believers, in this brand new congregation, in this brand new movement? They're recognizing this is not their movement. It's God's movement. And so they're recognizing the Holy Spirit and calling the people to choose from among themselves men full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that I find fascinating about this whole passage, not just this is the most critical moment in church history, and here are the two ways that they resolve the issue. First is, I can't get distracted. I've got to focus on prayer and word. But secondly, the Holy Spirit indwells each one of you. These are men that you recognize, not me. I don't appoint them. This isn't my church. It's not even the elders' church. We don't appoint individuals to the office of elder or deacon. But we say to you, raise up from amongst yourselves men who are full of the Spirit. So that's number one thing that I think is cool about this. Number two thing that I think is cool about this. What's the problem? uh, Gentile widows are being neglected. So who do they choose? This group of Jewish, predominantly Jewish believers. Who do they choose to oversee the distribution? Gentiles. Look at every name in that list of this original board of deacons. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus. These are Gentiles. These are Gentile names. And so this predominantly Jewish congregation, when there was an ethnic problem, 
that was coming up within the congregation chose Gentiles to be the ones who would oversee. Dude, that's humility. That's Christ-likeness. And that's something that we miss a lot. That is something that is a serious problem in the church, generically speaking, and can easily infect us as a congregation. There's a humility here. There's a spirit-led mercy and grace, peace that is here. A trying to bring unity and harmony that, that the writer to the Acts just takes as assumed. He just glosses over it, over how profound this choice is. The congregation chooses seven Gentiles to entrust all of their resources to. And so here's what I want you to get from point one. The office of deacon grows out of a radical, spirit-filled and spirit-driven congregation. Beloved, that's what we need to be. That's what we want to be. A radical, spirit-filled and spirit-driven congregation. The second thing I want you to notice in this arena is the work of that office. The work of the office of deacon. What is it that deacons do? Well, that's why we looked at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. He's told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There is an ethic, that an, an outworking of your faith. There's an outworking of the gospel. There's, the, the gospel is not so that you can sit in your closet and just meditate on Jesus until the stigmata appear. The gospel is so that you and I can be the hands of Jesus Christ in a world that needs it. And so you and I are called to live out this ethic that God calls Israel to in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. But it's really throughout the scripture. God cares for the helpless. And that job requires, if you'll note in verse 3 of, of Acts chapter 6, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Because, beloved, ask your deacons. They need a lot of wisdom. Is this cold call scamming me? Is this genuinely somebody who has truly fallen on hard times and loves Jesus Christ and we need to support and welcome in? Or is this a grifter? And that takes wisdom. That takes spirit-filled wisdom. It takes humility. It takes trust in one another. Also, we read 1 Timothy chapter 3. This, this is the standard classic, this is what a deacon should be, right? Do you remember that language when we read 1 Timothy chapter 3? Did you hear anything in there about what the deacon does? I mean, we see it in Acts, they wait tables, right? So what is 
Paul's qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Paul's telling his young protege, Timothy, these are the kinds of men that you want as, as elders. These are the kinds of men that you want as deacons. There's not a word in there about what they do. There's not a word in there about their intellectual gifting. Listen, Timothy, for a deacon, you really want somebody who's good at big picture. For a deacon, you want somebody who's really good at structure. For deacon, you want somebody who's got some financial sense to him, you know, some, 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 all of, nothing (laughs) of what we think a deacon should be. Frankly, an elder is the same thing. None of that. It's character. Look at the man's character. Look at the man's marriage. Look at the character of his wife. Is this man reflecting the spirit? And get this, please. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, get it in your head permanently. By focusing on the qualities of the man, By focusing on the character of the man, Paul is saying, and we trust the Holy Spirit's work in the man. Did you get that? We're trusting the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the man. That means we didn't hire him, and we're not going to fire him. It means we're not the ones that are going to come with a list, And beloved, we are not going to second guess. Now, if he steps over the line, of course, we're accountable. Yes, obviously. We work as a team. We're all accountable to one another, and we're accountable to the Lord. But I am not going to step into another spirit-led man's ministry and say, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. I don't like that. There are things that I do. There are things that I think I'm pretty good at. But I stay in my lane. I stay in my lane. And that's what the apostles did. Our lane is prayer and word. You need to pick men to fill this lane. And we are going to entrust these men to be led by the Spirit. These are not employees of the church by any stretch, nor are they in any way, as we shall see in a moment, are they in any way inferior. Officers. There's a faithfulness and there's an integrity in all the areas of the man's life. And the other thing I want to point out from the work of the deacon, the work of this office, is thousands of people in Acts, right? Thousands. How many men did they choose? Seven. So tell me, how hard did those men have to work to make sure that every table had food on it and every woman, every widow and orphan and the helpless and marginalized? There's no way. There is no way that these seven guys did it. Now, certainly they led... They led by example. But this is the ministry of the congregation. This is the ministry of the body of Christ to one another. And so, to circle back to my conservative brothers 
who are saying that we should have women deacons, I say you're right. Absolutely. Women are gifted just as much as men for service in the church, and all of us, we should have children deacons. Children can be Christ's hands of ministry. Office is a different matter. (laughs) Not advocating (laughs) for the office of women as deacons. But what I'm saying is that we're touching on this core foundational issue of service, of love, and the deacons administering so that you can be the one who shows that love to one another and to the one who comes in need. So when I'm bugging our deacons, Jason can tell you, I've been doing this for years. When I'm bugging our deacons, I'm saying, deacons, stop doing everything and start identifying people that you can tap on the shoulder to go do it. Because that is what I see as most consistent with the book of Acts. Now, our deacons do that well. And and I'm always encouraging them and appreciative of them and all of that stuff. I'm not saying that they're, they're doing wrong. But what I'm saying is this is why this is a core issue. Because the service is your service. The service, you don't need a title. It doesn't need an office. By titles and office, we are recognizing those men who exemplify and who lead. But in the same way that there's no significant gap between a private and a colonel. They both know how to shoot a gun. They both know how to charge the enemy. (laughs) They both know how to do the basic thing a soldier does. But the colonel is the one that's supposed to be excellent and tell the private, follow me as we take the hill. And that's what the deacon is. He's saying, follow me as we take the hill. That is the work of the deacon. It's a work of the congregation. The deacons facilitate the ministry of the body of Christ. That is so important to understand what deacons are and how they relate to you and me. Thirdly and finally, this office in relation to Christ. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah builds up, beginning really in chapter 42. Did you hear that? You know, behold my servant. And, and that servant theme, it's, it's, a, it's a super cool uh, literary development. The servant, who is the servant? That's the big mystery in Isaiah. Is the servant Israel? Well, in some places, yes. Is the servant Cyrus, the absolute pagan king? And in some cases, yes. God, through Isaiah, says, Cyrus, my servant. And then he goes into one of these glorious servant passages. But in Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah chapter 45, and Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah is teasing out this thing. Who's the servant? Who's the, because this servant's going to be glorious. You saw that in Isaiah chapter 42. This servant, whoever this servant is, <laughs> is going to bring the one who brings justice to the world. And the coastlands are going to call out for him to rule them. Who is this servant? And Isaiah doesn't leave us hanging. By the time you get to Isaiah chapter 50, 
Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 53, it becomes clear that the servant is Yahweh himself. The servant is Jehovah. In some weird way, we don't understand. But in some way, the servant is God. Well, of course, the New Testament opens that up for us. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. But this ultimate servant, this ultimate way of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, comes through the servant. One other passage that, that if you have not pondered, you need to, <laughs> is John's Gospel, chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. All right, there's your setting. Just before the crucifixion, and Jesus knows he's about to leave his disciples. And he has one more lesson. All right, there's the setup. What should that lesson be? Keep yourself from error. That is the most important thing I can leave with you. Here is the special formula for healing women on your own or healing people on your own. This, this, is, this is what you can rely on. Something that is going to be absolutely critical and foundational that his disciples need to get through their thick skulls. And so what does he do? He wraps a towel around his waist. And he kneels down. And he picks up their dirty, nasty feet in his holy hands. Hands that are going to be pierced for them. Are now holding their filthy feet. And with gentleness and love, he washes them clean. Peter is horrified, and he should be. This is offensive. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, Jehovah himself incarnate, should not be washing my feet. That's not right. I should be washing his And Peter says to Jesus, don't you dare. Don't you dare touch my nasty, smelly feet with those beautiful, holy hands of yours. And Jesus says to him, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't get it. You can't have any part of me if I don't wash your feet. Why? Why would Jesus pick this thing to be when he knew his hour had come. Why would he pick this thing? And secondly, why would he say to Peter, this determines whether you're in or out of the kingdom. Now, it's not that he invented a third sacrament called foot washing. That's not the point. His point is, and he says later, if you want to be my representative, you must show that you are the servant. 
This is what the people in Isaiah's day longed for. This is what they were crying for. Who is God's servant to make his will done on earth as it is in heaven? Who is this one? Jesus is. Jesus is. But beloved, he does not come to you riding on a white charger with his sword out of his hand ready to lop off the heads of his enemies. He comes to you lowly and on a colt, the foal of an ass. He comes to you humbly on his knees in front of your nasty, dirty feet, washing them with his pure, gentle, loving, holy hands. And he does that so that you and I know this is the heart of Christ. This is who Christ is. I am thankful for men who are bold. I am thankful for men who are clear. But men who are bold and clear but lack gentleness and humility are deranged monkeys with a flamethrower. Jesus Christ kneels and washes and loves and is so powerful. So, very quickly, I know I'm running along, but but let me make this point. I think it's worthwhile. You ever notice how the smartest guy in the room is not, or the smartest woman in the room, is not the person who's walking around telling you that they're the smartest person in the room. They're just sitting over to the side being the smartest person in the room. (laughs) They're just doing their thing. They don't feel the need for you to know that they've got the license and they've got the degrees and they've got the reading and you need to... The, The guy who's the tough guy at school is not the guy who comes up to you and says, I want you to know I'm the tough guy. He's the guy who's just quietly standing there. And you look at him and you go, hey, I think I'm going to take his lunch money. And then you look at him just standing there looking back at you and you go, yeah, no. <laughs> Leave him alone. I'm going to go take this guy's lunch money. This guy who's posing. This guy who's, who's bluffing. I'm going to go take that guy's lunch money. The guy who would be the servant of Christ, the guy who would speak to you the truth of Jesus Christ, is not the guy who's slamming you over the head and telling you how he's the servant of Christ and this is the truth of Christ. He's the guy who lovingly, gently, humbly is modeling Christ. In truth, yes. In service, absolutely. This is the very heart of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's dramatically countercultural. The intentional pursuit of needs, not opportunities. The, 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 the intentional pursuit of serving, not using. Looking at people as opportunities for me to share Christ, not as assets that are going to build up my reputation or build up my ministry or build up my pocketbook. It's profoundly counter-cultural. This 
Jesus Christ, who was so powerful. So powerful. Do you remember the woman who had an issue of blood that she'd gone to doctors and they couldn't deal with it? Jesus Christ is so powerful that all she has to do is just touch the hem of his garment and she will be healed. That's how much power this man has. I mean, he is God. That's, this is the one who created heavens and earth. This is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. And he gets down on his knees and picks up a nasty, smelly, dirty, disgusting foot and says, I'm going to take care of that for you. How many disciples were there? Twelve. What do we know about one of them? One of the pairs of feet that Judas washed. One of the pairs of feet that Jesus washed. I hope I said that right. One of the pairs of feet that Jesus washed belonged to Judas Iscariot. I find that humbling. Because I'll be honest with you, I assess an awful lot, how much is this person worthy of my time? I've got limited resources. i got limited time. If this person's leaning in, I'll lean back in. If this person's on the margins, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to waste a lot of time with somebody that I don't see a productive uh, outcome from. And after all, I have such limited time and I've got only so many things on my plate so I, I can pour myself in where I'm wanted. and where. That's not what Jesus does. He picks up Judas Iscariot's nasty, smelly feet just like he did Peter's. Because the point is not the outcome. The point is not the result. The point is Christ and mirroring Him, exemplifying Him and carrying Him into the world. So let me boil it down rapidly with this. The work of the deacon, specifically as it relates to you. Beloved, you and I cannot end world hunger. You know what we can do? Invite someone into our home. Go to Tree of Life and serve a meal. You and I can't have the perfect solution and the perfect fix to the problem of the illegal immigration. You know what we can do? At your level, at my level, we can welcome the stranger. We can look at someone that God has placed in our path in front of us, and we can say, how can I love you? What can I do to serve? Let God sort out the big things. Let Caesar sort out what belongs to Caesar. But here at the practical, here am I, and here are you, I can wash a foot, and so can you. I can serve a meal, and so can you. I can speak a gentle and kind word to someone who doesn't understand my language, is foreign to my culture, has gone through numerous harrowing experiences to stand on their two feet in front of me. I can say something loving and gentle and gracious to them. I can't redeem society, but I can live the gospel. And God will do his work. 
That prince, that servant, that peace will wash over the nations. That will roll down like thunder from the mountains. God's glory will be lifted up. The kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of leaven that's hidden in a lump. And it expands and it fills the whole lump. It's like a mustard seed that grows into a tree and the birds of the air come and nest in it. The kingdom of heaven grows and it grows not by you and me growing it. It grows by you and me washing someone's foot. Because that's when we're pointing them to Christ. That's when we are modeling Christ. Christ.